Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we explore Latino representation throughout Colorado's university system and how CU Denver leaders are pursuing newly available grants to help students. It's a journey of evolving our identity into an organization that actually values difference when it comes to the Hispanic population. And we get an update on efforts to rename racist landmarks in Colorado and across the West. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. More than one in five Coloradans identifies as Hispanic or Latino, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. And as that population continues to grow in our state, so too does their college enrollment. Data from the National Center for Education Statistics show that nationwide, Hispanic or Latino college enrollment rates increased from 22% in the year 2000 to 36% in 2018. And this increased enrollment in Colorado over the last two decades has led to several two-year and four-year schools becoming Hispanic-serving institutions, a designation from the U.S. Department of Education that allows schools to expand educational opportunities for both current and prospective Hispanic or Latino students. The latest school in Colorado to receive this designation is the University of Colorado Denver and its Anschutz Medical Campus, notably making CU Denver the first research university in Colorado to attain the status. Joining us to talk about this recent recognition and what it's going to mean for students now and into the future are Antonio Farias, Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at CU Denver, and Chris Hilton, a third-year student in CU Denver's public health program and student representative to the University of Colorado Board of Regents. Chris and Antonio, thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Uh, And it's good to be here with my wonderful uh, colleague, Chris Hilton, as well. So good to see you again, friend. So, Antonio, first, I'd like to start with you. Uh, For those of us who are largely outside of the world of higher education, can you begin by telling us more about what it means to be a Hispanic-serving institution? Uh, So what is a Hispanic-serving institution? At the end of the day, I really focus this in on the the word serving. Uh, Serving is an incredibly powerful word. Uh, It's also a word that oftentimes gets neglected or it's seen as a pejorative, uh, especially nowadays when we're thinking about service workers or what does it mean to serve? Um, so for, for the institution, right, for, the, for CU Denver, becoming a Hispanic serving institution is really more than just about numbers, right? In order to technically be a Hispanic serving institution, you have to meet a couple of thresholds that have to do with Pell eligibility, how much money we expend on students, uh, and then the key the key number is that we're at least twenty five percent Hispanic identifying students. Uh, that at times is where institutions uh, you know sort of leave everything else off the table uh, in terms of serving the student. And for us, this is the beginning of a journey. It's a journey of service. Uh, it's a journey of transformation. It's a journey of evolving our identity into an organization that actually values right, difference uh, when it comes to the Hispanic population. Uh, and by difference, I'm talking about cultural diversity. I'm talking about linguistic diversity, right? All of the complexity that is regional very specific, and very specific to Colorado and the Hispanic population, but also to Denver itself. Uh, you know, populations have been here since before contact. And I think it's, it's incredibly powerful for us to say as an organization 
that we're here to serve students. Uh, we all say we all believe that we are here to serve students in many ways as educators. And I'm talking here writ large across the you know the academic fields from K through 20. But is it true that we are serving the students in a culturally responsive way? And I think those are the key things. It's not just serving the student in the sense of getting them into the system and then getting them graduated, but it's also serving them in a way that is culturally responsive so that they feel a sense of belonging, which I think is an incredibly powerful tool for us to actually create the next workforce for this state, but also for this nation. You talked briefly there about a change of identity, and I'm wondering what effect you think this designation will have on how people outside of CU Denver will look and think about the institution overall. Chris, you want to take that one? Yeah, definitely. I think there's like two components to how it changes how we look, um, both to the external and the internal. In my personal opinion, I think it matches what we know internally. Like we know that the Hispanic community is present in our community and on our campus. And so like, that's wonderful. But when I think about like my other friends who have gone to different schools, like there's that pride in being like, okay, we're a research institution and being Hispanic serving means that the way we approach research is going to be a little bit differently than everywhere else. And that means that certain things like inequities and disparities will probably be more prevalent in our research. And so I think when I you know, talk to any friend who goes to like any East Coast school, I think that will be something that I will mention, like, yeah, this is part of our identity. And therefore, because it's our lived experience, it will change how we approach some of these other things we're working on. Just to tag on to what Chris said, this issue of research is really important, right? Because we are, we are the first research institution in Colorado that has this designation. So that, that puts an incredible, uh, an incredible amount of responsibility on us. Because when we're talking about things like, let's say, health disparities, Right. If we're not culturally responsive and understanding about, about what health disparities are as they impact the Hispanic population, uh, as you mentioned, Henry, right, this is an increasingly growing population. Right, right now, the, right across the nation, right, the, the number one name in kindergarten right now is Juan, right, and Juanita, as opposed to Jack and Jill. Right, so so that's incredibly powerful. That, that's a that's a demand signal that's being sent to us as educators that we need to be ready. Right for a changing demographic that should not be scary, right? Because we're all Americans, right? But if we're not sort of cognizant that as Americans, right, we Hispanic Americans have a have a distinct historical, right, and particularly health impact, right, in terms of how 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 health, as an example, or access to health, or the the impacts of environmental environmental pollution impact our populations. Then we're we're gonna we're gonna go to the to the universalist model, which is one size fits all, right? And that we that will not that will not suffice, right? What what happens with that model is that that people will die, right? People will not be served. People will be underserved, right? So again, I go back to this concept of service. So if we apply the HSI lens to health disparities, now we get really smart as as an organization that is doing health inequity research into the Hispanic population in Denver and in Colorado, where we reside. And now we can create real policy recommendations that are based on science that can help our legislators create structures that can actually help our populations thrive, right? That I think is incredibly important. The same thing with education. If we don't understand the impact of education and this disparate impact of education on the Hispanic population, as an example, 
then we can't modulate right these structures of education that again were built to serve right some universal one size fits all. So what will be the outcome that we won't have an educated workforce right in order to meet the te technological and economic needs of our nation. So this this really has real world impact as Chris was saying about us being a research organization that is is on the on the cutting edge of real research that impacts policy that impacts real world sort of uh, lives of our of our citizens. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Antonio Farias, Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at CU Denver, and Chris Hilton, a public health student at CU Denver, who also serves as a student representative to the University of Colorado Board of Regents. Antonio, I want to take a step back and ask about what makes a research institution like CU Denver different than other four-year schools, even say uh, Adams State or Metropolitan State University of Denver, some of the other four-year HSIs in Colorado? Yeah, so so a research a research institution is just the classification that was uh, you know if you if you reach it all the way back, it was it was it's a it's a Carnegie designation that says, depending on how many PhDs you have, what is the level of funding you have, uh, what is the kind of work you do, you're either uh, a teaching institution or you're different uh, gradations of, of research. I think they've moved away from calling it research one, research two, research three. These hierarchies, in my opinion, don't make sense, right? And it's not like, it, you know, our colleagues at MSU at Adams State aren't doing research. It just means that we have an infrastructure Right, that has been built up over time, right, that allows us to bring in faculty members nationally that are doing real impactful research on, and we're talking about big labs, multi-million dollar labs that are doing research on, let's say, cancer, the impact of cancer, right, on populations that then has real world impact on things like vaccinations, right, or vaccine development, or, or really radically different sort of surgical procedures. So it, it is, it's, it's really, being a research institution just means that we have capacity. We have an incredible amount of capacity, right, in terms of the brain trust of our faculty in order to put all that brain power into solving some of the most wicked problems that we have. As an example, cancer. As an example, incarceration. As an example, deforestation, climate change, you name it. So it, it really is about resources. We have we, we have been we, we have the advantage of having much more of an infrastructure about resources that allows us to do work that say a, a more traditional teaching college does not have. Uh, and it, and that's not and that's not to say that they're not doing great work. Uh, I, I want to make that really clear. We we are privileged in the sense that we are a research institution, but we also have a responsibility that in order to make that research impact our populations. Well, we've been talking about some pretty big ideas here. So I kind of want to zoom in and Chris ask you maybe more of a simple question, but what does the designation mean to you? And how did it feel to hear that news? Or just what do you think about it? I mean, the designation in the end is just a federal acknowledgement of like what we as students feel and see every day. Um, so like on the feeling side, like that's there. Um, just because of the meetings I'm in, both as student body president and as rep to the regents, like this means that more resources can go into things that are truly like different approaches to like helping us make it through this experience that is college. Um, I've seen already like we have bilingual tutoring services for immigrant students. And it's like, that's a different way to approach and meet students where they're at. And to me, like this type of designation could mean that we have more resources that go into those programs that really help 
match what our community needs as we try to accomplish this, like, what can sometimes seem like an insurmountable thing of getting a degree. Obviously, CU Denver has been through a lot of growth to get to that 25%, but you know, that didn't just happen overnight. So this population's been growing over the last few decades, and it's probably going to continue to grow, I would imagine, at least to some degree. Chris, what do you want to see maybe in your role as student body president, or what are you hearing from Hispanic students about the future of CU Denver? I think we just went through a process of selecting what our strategic plan would look like for the next 10 years. And the first element was like becoming an equity serving institute, which is like sort of abstract. But what I hear from students is they really want us to run towards our diversity, have our diversity of our student body be reflected in our staff and our faculty and our administration, which is already happening. And I'm insanely proud of that. But we want to really embrace that. So where it does look like Colorado and even looks like a better version of Colorado to some extent and is really recruiting these communities that have been neglected by the system that like I'm now part of and like helping to run. And I think what I would like to see personally is that as we enable like the students, we really encourage them to go back to where they came from. Like I want my friends who live in like Montbello to go back there and like spread what it means to be like CU Denver and help that community too. Chris, I love your, your, your the, the phrase run towards our diversity. Uh, I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, and, and again, that goes back to that concept of like, rather than fearing difference, right, we embrace it. That's the first part of our conversation with CU Denver's Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, Antonio Farias, and Christopher Hilton, a third year public health student and student body president at CU Denver. In a moment, we'll hear more about the generations of students, faculty, and staff who helped CU Denver reach this point, and we'll explore the changes ahead for the state's newest Hispanic-serving institution. You're listening to Colorado Edition from... KUNC. The U.S. Department of Education recently designated the University of Colorado Denver as a Hispanic-serving institution, making it the first research institution in our state with that status. We've been speaking about that new designation and what it means for students at CU Denver with Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Antonio Farias, and Christopher Hilton, a student in CU Denver's public health program. He is also a student representative to the CU Board of Regents and student body president. Antonio, when did CU Denver first start to identify this growth in Hispanic and Latino enrollment? And, you know, from that point, what steps did the institution take to get to where it is now? So th- this is years in the making, uh, if not generations in the making, uh, Henry. Uh, you know, I, I've only been here seven months, and I can tell you for a fact that faculty, staff, and students have been advocating uh, for us to move in this direction for long, way longer than I've been here. Uh, so I, I give a lot of credit. I always give the most credit to the students because they're the ones, even though they're here for anywhere from three, you know two to six years, uh, they're the ones that leave a legacy of activism around uh, around responsibility. And the students are really our consciousness, right? So in many ways, right, they are living embodiments of 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 our best values and what we can best live into in terms of our in terms of our climate and our culture 
and at the end, our ethos. So I, I credit a lot, you know, one of the people that I would really credit a lot for in terms of ad, advocating for this Hispanic serving institution sort of model and mindset is Nolbert Chavez. Uh, Nolbert is, is one of our regents. Uh, he's also an employee here at, at CU Denver, but he's been beating this, be, beating this sort of this, this wall now for a while of saying, listen, this is coming. Uh, and, and we need to be ready for this. And, and not just him. Our, I, I would also credit our Latinx faculty and, and staff and our students for saying this is coming. Right. And and we should be ready and we should be ready not just to not just to embrace this, but to celebrate. it. And I think that's the, really the power. We need to celebrate this difference, but not just stay stuck in the celebration. It's one thing to sort of sort of really embrace this in, in a powerful, positive way. And now we need to roll up our sleeves and get the work done. And that's where I'm here, right? I'm here. I'm fortunate and privileged to be here at a time in CU Denver's history when we really get to roll up our sleeves and start really doing the work of serving, right? Again, I go back to that phrase that Chris said, right? We have to run towards, right, our identity. Uh, in many ways, right, we know that, that students, right, should show up just as they are. And there's nothing wrong with them showing up just as they are. If they show up as immigrants, if they show up bilingual, if they show up as first generation, if they show up as coming, you know, from, you know, from, from poor backgrounds, right? And that, that is who they are. And there's nothing wrong with them, right? It's, it's, it's up to us as, as the administration, as the faculty, as the staff, right, to run towards them and say, welcome. We've been waiting for you, right? And here's how we're going to co-create the future together. I think that's the power of, again, this concept of serving is that we're going to co-create. We're not going to do something to our students. We're not here to do things to our students. We're here to co-create a future that they have to inhabit. And hopefully, if we're smart enough, right, they're going to save us from ourselves in the future generations to come. Chris, any follow-up to that? No. Um, I mean, we would love to save everything right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, when it, like, I came back to this campus about two years ago. And that was still the conversation that was being had of like, we're pursuing HSI. And even in the meetings I've been in, um, Regent Chavez has like, I mean, it makes sense. He is a Hispanic person. He's from San Luis Valley in Southern Colorado where my family's from. And like, yeah, I would love to encourage people from there to understand like, yes, you can attend a CU school and realize that a large amount of the people on campus look like you and have that shared backgrounds as you. And what do you two want people to take away from this moment for, for CU Denver? So I, the one thing I, I would love our, our listeners to, to, to walk away with uh, is, is a sense that when we, when we mean Hispanic serving institution, we are, we are not just saying that we are only serving Hispanic students. I want to make that really clear. We serve all our students, but in the process of really getting smart about how we serve Hispanic students, we're actually going to start changing the way we do business here, the way we educate, the way we do transactions here, right? And we'll create more equitable systems, right? That are more humanizing, more compassionate, and more empathic. And because of that, it will help all other students as well. So I, I don't want anyone to walk away thinking, well, now CU Denver is only serving Hispanic students. That nothing could be further from the truth, right? And, and that's, the, that's, the, that, that's where I want to be really clear. We serve all students, but by having ourselves designated as a Hispanic serving institution, we can start changing the apparatus, right? The offices. Think of this as a giant bureaucracy, right? So how do we change a bureaucracy to make it more humanizing, more culturally responsive? Well, we have to train this, this bureaucracy in a new way. 
And this gives us an opportunity to retrain it in a way that actually helps Hispanic students as well as helps all other students that are coming through this pipeline as well. The thing I was going to add was essentially what Antonio just said, where it's like, this is just our start. Like, we are really committed to the idea of that equity serving. And that means for every different identity. It doesn't matter if you are disabled or if you are queer like me or if you are Hispanic. We are trying to broaden that so that way everybody can attain that CU degree. Um, and I think the best part about this is honestly, it, it does come down to this designation does give more money to us. And it means that our teachers and our faculty who honestly care about our students and our students getting those degrees and changing their lives through that will now have more resources to make that happen to communities who didn't have that opportunity. Antonio Farias is Vice Chancellor of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at CU Denver, and Chris Hilton is a third-year student in CU Denver's Public Health Program. Antonio and Chris, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you, Henry, and thank you, Chris, as always. Of course. Thank you all. It was wonderful. Dozens of natural landmarks bear names that highlight our nation's racist history. There are signs of change, like in California, where the owners of Squaw Valley Ski Resort have renamed it Palisades Tahoe. But as KUNC's Robin Vincent reports, government action can be slow. Daniel Tom is a lawyer who moved to Colorado in 2015. He was born in Arizona, and his family has been in the U.S. since the mid-1800s. Still, as a Chinese-American, he navigates new places with caution. I think you prepare yourself for something. You prepare yourself for an incident. Since Tom moved to the small mountain town of Buena Vista in south-central Colorado, he hasn't experienced any incidents. But there are at least a few signs that make him feel unwelcome. Actual signs. They read Chinaman Gulch. I think it's something that that tells us still that we don't really belong. Chinaman Gulch is a steep trail carved into the rocky earth near Buena Vista in Chafee County. Cattle graze in the lush fields nearby and snow-capped peaks rise in the distance. It's among dozens of areas across the nation with an offensive title up for a new name. 100 some miles away is Squaw Peak. A Colorado advisory board has recommended it be called Mestahay Mountain to honor a Cheyenne translator. I mean, we changed one Squaw Mountain, but there's like several more. That's state lawmaker Adrian Benavides, a member of the Colorado Geographic Naming Advisory Board. I mean, it should make all of us in the state feel badly that we have those names. The renaming process begins with a request to the U.S. Board on Geographic Names. They research the name's origins and the proposed new title. They also contact every tribal nation in the country for input, and they tap local governments and state naming boards. This helps to explain the molasses-like pace of the process. A petition to rename Chinaman Gulch was first submitted in 2019. Chafee County Commissioner 
Greg felt. Maybe one of these things where you sort of ask yourself, well, is it a good use of our time to talk about this? Like, this hasn't really been an issue that I'm aware of in the past. At first, commissioners opposed a name change. Felt says the person calling for it was from out of state, and the proposed name, Trout Creek Gulch, didn't make sense. That creek doesn't run through the gulch. At the time, Felt says he didn't think Chinaman was offensive either. The name, he says, acknowledged that a Chinese man who made equipment for the railroad likely lived in the area. But today, with people like Daniel Tom speaking out, he sees things differently. The way we're looking at this has been influenced over these several years by an increase in interest from our local population. Felt says he hears the will of the people. Over in Wyoming, tribal members hope their voices will finally be heard too. The Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council submitted petitions to rename two areas in Yellowstone National Park, including Mount Doan. It bears the name of Army Lieutenant Gustavus Doan, who led a massacre of more than 200 Picani, a division of the Blackfeet Indians. Tom Rogers, a Blackfeet member, is with the Rocky Mountain Tribal Leaders Council. He instructed his soldiers that when they ran out of bullets, they could use the pickaxes on them. County commissioners opposed any change, but the state board voted to rename Mount Doan to First Peoples Mountain in 2019. Meanwhile, the U.S. Board on Geographic Names is still waiting on input from the National Park Service. Rogers points out that the Biden administration includes Deb Holland, the first native to lead the Department of the Interior. The gatekeepers are no longer men who are fearful of examining the past. It's much more of, come, let us discuss. Rogers says history can be used to imprison people or inform them. He believes these name changes will liberate some who've been shackled by history. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Robin Vincent. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we hear about new ideas to help the state's big game population migrate more safely. I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.